I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. The telephone in the president's bedroom in the family quarters of the White House rang in the middle of the night as Thursday, August 31, 1939, became Friday, September 1st. Across the Atlantic, Adolf Hitler's Wehrmacht, executing a war plan codenamed Case White, had struck Poland. World War II was beginning in earnest. William Bullitt, Roosevelt's ambassador to France, got the word and reached the president, who took the call in bed. Well, Bill, FDR said, it's come at last. God help us all. I'm John Meacham, and this is Season 2 of Hope Through History, Episode 1, Slow Walk to War. Americans thought this might well be, yet again, another European scheme to drag the United States into a war that would kill a lot of Americans and in which we did not belong. Only one thing holds this country from war today. That is the rising opposition of the American people. Where was our money going to go when we don't have money to take care of us at home? And so the country was still on edge. God help us all. It was understandable that Roosevelt was thinking about the Almighty, for the problems the president faced seemed insuperable. The nation was strongly isolationist, and fear was a common theme. Fear of entanglement, fear of sacrificing American blood and treasure for the advantage of others, fear of putting foreign demands ahead of national needs. The Great Depression was global in nature, If only we could put America first, the isolationists argued, then all might still be well. Well, we were schizophrenic. And I think that we did not want to engage, but we couldn't not pay attention. This is the professor and historian, Alita Black. And part of it really was America's trauma of the Great Depression, because While the New Deal was working, it did not end the Great Depression. And so the country was still on edge. And there were some people that blamed international trade for the Great Depression. There were some people who were naturally suspicious of 
where was our money going to go when we don't have money to take care of us at home? So we are a disunited nation on how much we should pay attention to the world, but we can't really let it go. This view was held widely and deeply. In 1936, a survey by George Gallup found that 95% of those polled believed America should stay out of any European war. FDR was intuitively attuned to such political facts. He is a gentleman in every sense of the word, well-meaning and very ambitious. Sir Ronald Lindsay, the British ambassador to the United States, wrote the Foreign Office in London. He has antenna and political sense to his very fingertips. Instinctively, he knows what the feeling of the moment is and what is politically possible. Roosevelt also performed the essential presidential function of looking ahead, beyond the moment, to what the world might bring. And the more he contemplated Germany's evident designs to expand, Hitler referred to it as the Reich's search for Lebensraum, or living space, the more Roosevelt sensed ultimate trouble. Constrained by neutrality legislation and by public opinion, the president nevertheless did the best he could to prepare for the possibility of war. The Roosevelts had a more global understanding of the United States, not only in terms of its place in the world, but also of history writ large. When he becomes Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War I, he goes to visit Europe as the war draws to an end to really assess the devastation that was inflicted on European fleets as well as the United States ships who were engaged. And so he saw up close and personal the devastation that war brought in all of its horror, not only in material casualties, not only in the destruction of boats and ships and cities, but also in the great costs of just pain that was inflicted on citizens who were either on the battlefield or not. The story begins in March 1918, when Germany had reached the extent of its powers in the Great War, extending its borders into Poland and the Ukraine before losing those gains in the months leading to the armistice in November of 1918. World War I was over, but the German anxiety for more living space lived on. Like Italy, Germany was a fairly new nation-state, coming into being in 1871. Italy was 1861. Seizing land to extend one's borders and or influence was the standard undertaking of the imperial game of the age. As a British admiral said in 1934, neatly capturing the spirit of the time, we are in the remarkable position of not wanting to quarrel with anybody because we have got most of the world already, or the best parts of it, and we only want to keep what we have got and prevent others from taking it away from us. Around them are other nations already inoculated with the fascist fever. But of the fascist nations in Europe today, Germany emerges as the supreme example. Democracy is destroyed. The dictator is a demigod who can do no wrong. Propaganda dominates the nation's mind. Nazi Germany faces her destiny with one of the great war machines in history. 
and the inevitable destiny of the great war machines of the past has been to destroy the peace of the world, its people, and the governments of their time. Hitler came to power in 1933, in the same season in which Roosevelt was sworn in as the 32nd president. Hitler's rise to power unfolded as isolationist sentiment in America deepened. Foreign affairs were seen as entangling, depleting distractions. Roosevelt, however, was more internationalist in his outlook. He believed, as he put it, that it was a very small world, and that the rise and spread of air power made the old idea of Fortress America obsolete. Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, later remarked that air power in the early stages of World War II represented as real and as existential a threat as nuclear warfare would be in the Cold War. Hitler's ambitions and intentions weren't particularly mysterious. On November 9, 1938, he ordered Kristallnacht. By the last day of January 1939, FDR had become convinced, as he put it, that there was a policy of world domination between Germany, Italy, and Japan. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts. The team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Germany began a series of territorial grabs in Europe, getting away with one after another. And yet a core of the American public didn't want to hear about it. In June 1940, polling showed that 64% of Americans believed it more important to stay out of war than to help England. These were the quarrels of other people far away. It goes back to the beginning of the country when George Washington warned us against entangling alliances. Here we were a country where the majority of Americans were very much against the notion of not only getting involved in any war, but any war that looked like the war that they had fought in the teens under Woodrow Wilson, because by the 1930s, many Americans felt that what we now know as World War I had been fought in vain. This is the historian and author Michael Beschloss. If the idea was to prevent the possibility of another war by the late 1930s, that hope had been extinguished. So even at the time that Poland was invaded in the fall of 1939, Americans thought this might well be yet again another European scheme to drag the United States into a war that would kill a lot of Americans and in which we did not belong. In August 1939, Hitler and Joseph Stalin concluded a mutual non-aggression pact, 
freeing Hitler to strike Poland and westward, which he did, beginning on the first day of September 1939. After he received the call in the White House, FDR told the country, It is easy for you and for me to shrug our shoulders and say that conflicts taking place thousands of miles from the continental United States, and indeed thousands of miles from the whole American hemisphere, do not seriously affect the Americas, and that all the United States has to do is to ignore them and go about its own business. Passionately, though we may desire detachment, we are forced to realize that every word that comes through the air, every ship that sails the sea, every battle that is fought, does affect the American future. Roosevelt waged a steady but not overwhelming campaign to make the world appear relevant to a country battered by depression and wary of foreign entanglements. That wariness was tangible. Congressman Lewis Ludlow of Indiana even proposed a constitutional amendment that would have required a popular referendum to declare war. The amendment came to a vote in the House in early 1938. Polling showed significant public support, with 73% favoring Ludlow's bill. In a letter to the Speaker of the House, Roosevelt wrote, Our government is conducted by the people through representatives of their own choosing. It was with singular unanimity that the founders of the Republic agreed upon such free and representative form of government as the only practical means of government by the people. Such an amendment to the Constitution as that proposed would cripple any president in his conduct of our foreign relations, and it would encourage other nations to believe that they could violate American rights with impunity. The House voted the measure down 209 to 188. Score one for Roosevelt, but he didn't win them all. Charles Lindbergh, the leading isolationist, said, We must not be misguided by this foreign propaganda that our frontiers lie in Europe. What more could we ask than the Atlantic Ocean on the east, the Pacific on the west? An ocean is a formidable barrier, even for modern aircraft. Roosevelt's view was subtler. The fates of nations were interconnected. In late July 1939, the president met with congressional leadership seeking to revise neutrality laws in order to enable the United States to sell arms to Britain and to France. Led by Senator William Borah of Idaho, the isolationists refused. Vice President John Nance Garner told Roosevelt, Well, Captain, we may as well face the facts. You haven't got the votes, and that's all there is to it. Then, in a matter of weeks, Hitler struck Poland. In a broadcast two weeks after the invasion, Charles Lindbergh argued for leaving the old world to its own devices. He said, Now that war has broken out again, we in America have a decision to make on which the destiny of our nation depends. In making our decision, this point should be clear. These wars in Europe are not wars in which our civilization is defending itself against some Asiatic intruder. There is no Genghis Khan marching against our Western nations. This is not a question of banding together to defend the white race against foreign invasion. This is simply one more of those age-old quarrels within our own family of nations. Roosevelt disagreed. 
From the fall of 1939 through 1940 and into 1941, FDR slowly but surely signaled his opposition to Germany. This is not a fireside chat on war. It is a talk on national security. Because the nub of the whole purpose of your president is to keep you now and your children later out of a last-ditch war for the preservation of American independence and all of the things that American independence means to you and to me and to ours. The Nazi masters of Germany have made it clear that they intend not only to dominate all life and thought in their own country, but also to enslave the whole of Europe and then to use the resources of Europe to dominate the rest of the world. Roosevelt was a Wilsonian internationalist, and that did not change after 1920. And then in the 1930s, once he became president, he realized that Congress was overwhelmingly not only against getting involved in another war, but even against rearming to make sure that that would not happen. So essentially between the end of World War I and the end of the 1930s, Roosevelt, in my view, was privately essentially as Wilsonian as it gets, but in public he pretended to be the opposite. As he saw it a third term running against the Republican Wendell Wilkie, the president conceded this much to isolationist sentiment, announcing in Boston, And while I'm talking to you fathers and mothers, I give you one more assurance. I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign war. Listening on the radio, Wilkie said, that hypocritical son of a bitch, this is going to beat me. It did. Roosevelt's deeds did not comport, however, with his remarks in Boston. He had already won repeal of the embargo on arms sales overseas. He'd worked out an agreement with Britain to exchange old American destroyers for basing rights. He waged an undeclared naval war in the Atlantic. And at the beginning of 1941, he proposed a broad plan called Lend-Lease to supply the Allies. The idea had come to him during a holiday fishing trip aboard the USS Tuscaloosa in the Caribbean with Harry Hopkins, his advisor. A seaplane had brought Roosevelt an impassioned letter from Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who was pleading for material aid to keep Hitler at bay. Six months earlier, writing on the evening of Saturday, June 15, 1940, Churchill, standing virtually alone against Hitler, had begged Roosevelt for help. Churchill wrote, Although the present government and I personally would never fail to send the fleet across the Atlantic if resistance was beaten down here, a point may be reached in the struggle where the present ministers no longer have control of affairs, and when very easy terms could be obtained for the British islands by their becoming a vassal state of the Hitler Empire. A pro-German government would certainly be called into being to make peace, and might present to a shattered or a starving nation an almost irresistible case for
for entire submission to the Nazi will. In the bleak days of May and June of 40, Churchill was ready to die if necessary for the cause of Britain. As he had told his cabinet on Tuesday, May 28th, we shall go on and we shall fight it out here or elsewhere. And if at last the long story is to end, it were better it should end not through surrender, but only when we are rolling senseless on the ground. Now in the closing weeks of 1940, the prime minister sought aid from Roosevelt who read the letter in the sunshine aboard the Tuscaloosa. Churchill wrote, Unless we can establish our ability to feed this island, to import the munitions of all kinds which we need, unless we can move our armies to the various theaters where Hitler and his confederate Mussolini must be met and maintain them there, and do all this with the assurance of being able to carry it on till the spirit of the continental dictators is broken, we may fall by the way, and the time needed by the United States to complete her defensive preparations may not be forthcoming. Churchill's appeal worked. The president proposed Lindley's, a program to supply the British without becoming more directly involved in the war. Returning to Washington, FDR used his State of the Union address, delivered to Congress on Monday, January 6, 1941, to link his vision of life at home with his understanding of America's interests abroad. Today, thinking of our children and of their children, we oppose for enforced isolation for ourselves or for any other part of the America. Every realist knows that the democratic way of life is at this moment being directly assailed in every part of the world, assailed either by arms or by secret spreading of poisonous propaganda by those who seek to destroy unity and promote discord in nations that are still at peace. As men do not live by bread alone, they do not fight by armaments alone. Those who man our defenses and those behind them who build our defenses must have the stamina and the courage which come from unshakable belief in the manner of life which they are defending. The mighty action that we are calling for cannot be based on a disregard of all the things worth fighting for. And what were the democracies fighting for? In the future days, which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms 
means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy, peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. He closed on a note of realistic hope. That is no vision of a distant millennium. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. On Thursday, September 11th, 1941, eight months after Roosevelt articulated his vision of a world founded upon four essential human freedoms, Charles Lindbergh stepped to the microphones at an America First Committee rally in Des Moines. We cannot allow the natural passions and prejudices of other peoples to lead our country to destruction. The Roosevelt administration is the third powerful group which has been carrying this country toward war. Founded by law students at Yale University, America First was devoted to the principle that American democracy can be preserved only by keeping out of the European war, and that age short of war weakens national defense at home and threatens to involve America in war abroad. In late 1940, so many Americans were signing up for America First that Time magazine said the group's organization drive was going like a house of fire. By one estimate, 60,000 people had joined 11 different chapters. Lindbergh had taken it upon himself to speak, as he put it elsewhere, for that silent majority of Americans who have no newspaper or newsreel or radio station at their command. Now it was time, he had decided, to make himself very clear on what he saw as a critical issue facing the nation as it debated whether to go to war against Hitler, the role of American Jews. In Des Moines, Lindbergh said this, It is not difficult to understand why Jewish people desire the overthrow of Nazi Germany. The persecution they suffered in Germany would be sufficient to make bitter enemies of any race. No person with a sense of the dignity of mankind can condone the persecution of the Jewish race in Germany. But, and the but here is epical, but no person of honesty and vision can look on their pro-war policy here today without seeing the dangers involved in such a policy both for us and for them. Their greatest danger to this country lies in their large ownership and influence in our motion pictures our press, our radio, and our government. The British and the Jews, Lindbergh continued, for reasons which are not American, wish to involve us in the war. 
We cannot blame them for looking out for what they believe to be their own interests, but we must also look out for ours. Only one thing holds this country from war today. That is the rising opposition of the American people. We are on the verge of war for which we are, are still unprepared and for which no one has offered a feasible plan of victory. A war which cannot be won without sending our soldiers across an ocean to fight and to force a landing on a hostile coast against armies stronger than our own. We... We are on the verge of war, but it is not yet too late to stay out. It is not yet too late to show that no amount of money or propaganda or patronage can force a free and independent people into war against its will. Roosevelt had turned on Lindbergh long before. The previous year, after another isolationist plea to the country from the aviator, the president had told Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau, if I should die tomorrow, I want you to know this. I am absolutely convinced that Lindbergh is a Nazi. The Lindbergh remarks in Des Moines on the role of Jewish opinion worried more than a few of his fellow isolationists. Herbert Hoover wrote, Lindbergh's anti-Jewish speech is, of course, all wrong, and I fear it will hurt all of us who are opposed to war. Norman Thomas, the socialist leader, declined to speak further on behalf of America First. Thomas said, Not all Jews are for war, and Jews have a right to agitate for war if we have a right to agitate against it. John T. Flynn, a journalist and America Firster, sent a plaintive message to the committee's leaders after Des Moines. It seems incredible to me that Colonel Lindbergh, without consulting anyone, literally committed the America First movement to an open attack upon the Jews. Anti-Semitism was a fact of life in America. In the Red Scare years, Henry Ford's Dearborn Independent, a Michigan newspaper, chronicled the alleged Jewish influence in American life and published The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a fabricated anti-Semitic text that provided haters a false narrative of Jewish conspiracy. When we get through with the Jews in America, Father Charles Coughlin told an audience, they'll think the treatment they received in Germany was nothing. The German-American Bund, led by Fritz Kuhn, had held a 20,000-strong gathering at Madison Square Garden in February 1939 that featured cries of Heil Hitler. The principles of the Bund and the principles of the Klan are the same, a Bund leader said while appearing with Arthur Bell, the Grand Dragon of the New Jersey Ku Klux Klan. In 1940, fearing a third Roosevelt term, the Third Reich had sought to influence the presidential election by placing newspaper ads and paying for isolationist congressmen to attend the Republican National Convention. Even after Pearl Harbor and Hitler's declaration of war on the United States in December 1941, there were those who peddled a toxic blend of anti-Semitism, which came to include Holocaust denial, 
virulent anti-communism and Nazi ideology. Gerald L.K. Smith, a former ally of the late Huey Long, was a leading Hitlerite who ran for president in 1944 and published an alt-right forerunner, The Cross and the Flag. In later years, Smith advocated a form of white Christian nationalism. The Christian Nationalist Crusade, he wrote, is a nationwide political movement dedicated to the mobilization of citizens who respect American tradition and whose idealism is founded on Christian principle. We believe that the destiny of America in relationship to its governing authority must be in the hands of our own people. We must never be governed by aliens. We must keep control of our own money and our own blood. Americans, FDR noted in 1941, would rather die on our feet than live on our knees. And so, at long last, we stood up. Difficult choices may have to be made in the months to come. We do not shrink from such decisions. We and those united with us will make those decisions with courage and determination. I know that I speak for the American people, and I have good reason to believe that I speak also for all the other peoples who fight with us when I say that this time we are determined not only to win the war, but also to maintain the security of the peace that will follow. Coming up this season on Hope Through History, Abraham Lincoln travels to Gettysburg to address a broken nation. George W. Bush announces an emergency plan for AIDS relief. The tragic sinking of the Lusitania leads America into World War I. And Bloody Sunday erupts in Selma, Alabama, bringing voting rights to the foreground. Thank you for listening to Hope Through History a documentary podcast presentation from C-13 Originals in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited, produced, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Produced and production engineering and research support by Paige Heimson, Ian Mont, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, and Sean Sherry. Graphic design, marketing, and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schuff, Josephina Francis, and Kurt Courtney. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.